Currency is the best incentive mechanism for cryptography advancement the world's ever seen. We're getting a decade's worth of cryptography every year now, it seems, because the incentive structures are lined up that way. It does seem like we'll just see breakthrough after breakthrough. People didn't think that ZK compression was going to be possible until 2026. And now here we are, three different teams from three different orgs are launching. Scraping Bits is brought to you by the following sponsors. MEV Protocol. Maximize your ETH staking value with MEV ETH, exclusively on MEV.io. And Composable. Execute any intent on any chain coming soon to Mantis.app. That's M-A-N-T-I-S dot A-double-P. GMGM, everyone. My name is Degachi, the host of Scraping Bits, and today I'm with Fuba. How's it going, friend? Hey, great. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Working hard as usual. Crypto never stops. <laughs> so here we are. Just for the people that don't know you, who are you and what do you do? Yeah, my background is technical, I guess, like everybody else on the Gachi setup. So studied math, mm-hmm. worked as an ML researcher for several years in big tech, and then mm-hmm. got pulled into crypto, specifically DeFi, with the obsession with open source and the composability and powers that that enables. A bunch of tiny upstarts be able to topple bigger bigger incumbents with sheer openness and people building on them. And that got me interested in crypto of what happens if you put money in the mix, what happens if you add open state on top of that. So did a lot of consulting work for blue chips, designed cross-chain bridging structures that have held up even in the wake of the recent multi-chain collapses. And then that interest naturally turned towards NFTs, maybe less sophisticated, but far more actual interest and people able to identify with and use these. And what the proper evolution of that looks like, because in a lot of ways, NFTs are actually more powerful than fungible tokens, even if it can be an adventure to make them compose with each other. So I've built out several infrastructure pieces aiming towards that constructs an on-chain programmable identity, like a crypto-based power of attorney or role-based access control. Be able to assign specific rights or specific powers separating asset utility from asset security. Yeah, quite interesting. And you've built up this whole reputation based off your work as well. Uh, I wonder why you chose the open source route instead of just going closed source. Obviously, if you make proprietary software and you don't want to share it and it can make a lot of money, why go down the open source route instead of a closed source? Well, first, I think, at least in the EVM culture, it's very hard to gain trust with a closed source approach. Other blockchains like Solana haven't quite developed that yet, but my current focus being delegate.xyz that lets Mm -hmm. users, people, A, cannot build on you. You have to own the entire stack, and that's an extremely competitive process. And it's also just surprising how few competitors there are in crypto at the moment. I can count on one hand the number of competent dev teams that I'm familiar with that are even working on anything adjacent. And so Mm. speed matters far more than getting a little too cloistered private. Far more products fail because nobody hears about them than fail because they got copied. I agree. I think even for startups to get to like the initial product is quite hard like getting to an mvp state and then after you get to the mvp state getting it out there to where people actually know about it i wonder what your process was for delegate getting the first mvp out and then spreading that information to the public and getting people to use it right now it's secured over 600 million dollars in assets with twenty thousand users so what were the early days like and how did you really scale from there 
It started out with more of a problem statement than a solution. We had a month where timeline was nothing but board a pack after board a pack. So a lot of people were intimately familiar with that this was a problem. There was just a lot of confusion and waffling on somebody actually doing anything about it. The most common failure case is people build something that is too specific and it works for their mm. use case, but can't be generalized or applied to anything else. And then others yeah. come along and they say, this doesn't work for me. And so they fork specific one into specific two that works for their use case, but literally nothing else. But it, it's very hard for most people to think architecturally. They get stuck at it works or it doesn't, and they can't have many opinions beyond that. So there are a couple of working groups actually tackling this problem even before I entered the picture. Warm XYZ had been alive for nearly a year prior, but... To be frank, nobody had the jet spot to actually do something about it. To make these hard architectural decisions, there are so many pieces like, should off-chain signatures be allowed? Should this be incorporated into any NS subdomain system? What sort of grant should there be subdivision into utility types? If so, do those need to be hard-coded? And strong opinions on both sides of the aisle on all of these. So I think I was the first one to actually make the decisions and launch something with it and then put a lot of BD integration effort behind it, which has been probably 95% of the success. It's good to have a generalizable tool, but if nobody knows about it, then it's not going to get used. So that follow through has been distinct from past stuff where I've launched it and had a little burst and then died, was determined to see this through and keep pushing. And that's paid off. Yeah, yeah, obviously it's paid off. <laughs> As you mentioned, you've done stuff in the past with different startups where small bursts and then died. So the, the real differential factor is making a network and making sure people actually want to use it. Or what was the biggest problem that you realized in the past projects that you fixed in the current ones? I think at a, those were targeting different domains, but the common thread was expecting the tech to speak for itself. And this is, I think, false humility a lot of times. People say, oh, I'm too bashful. I don't want to tell the world. What if I'm bragging? That might make other people feel bad. The world should just come and look and make their own determination. But I think that's actually more arrogant than it is humble because you're saying mm. that not only is your work so good that it's useful, but it's so good that the average uninformed person in a couple minutes will be able to immediately generalize and ideate how this applies to them. And that's the case that for, frankly, nothing. You can invent a room temperature superconductor, and most people still won't know what that is or how they can use it. So I think that just generally that more aggressive push on, frankly, support working with teams, helping understand their problems, helping them integrate it, troubleshooting when things go wrong and whatnot. Yeah, and to get this idea of what their problems were, were you asking the same questions to everyone or did a couple of teams mention it and you gave like an MVP and did some feedback iterations or was it just kind of like you build your first iteration, then go reach out to people and be like, okay, does this work for you? Do you need something like this and give them that MVP early access kind of stuff? I think more organically than most, it was pretty clear that this was a problem. So everybody was happy for the solution on that front. But then when it comes to how it plugs into their specific stack, 
some might be happy reading directly from the chain. Others might want a REST API, a JavaScript SDK, really easy ways to browse and see experiences visually. So plugging in all these holes of maybe supporting infra, the registry is unique in that it's an immutable smart contract. So you do have to prep the rocket ship and then launch and see if it blows up or not. In this case, it didn't. <laughs> There's still a lot of surrounding mission control that you can do of, do we have comms on the thing? Are there barriers we can clear out of the air that assist this immutable piece? And then I've got natural connections with a lot of projects and people in the space. So through that outreach, hey, we like that it can do A, B, and C. Can it do D? Sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes no, sometimes maybe. And so figuring out how do you generalize this much broader suite of applications Gotcha. Yeah. It actually reminds me, delegate of account abstraction. Is that correct? Because like you have your cold wallet and you connect it to a hot one. The hot one does the stuff for the cold wallet, right? Yeah. Account abstraction seems to have been redefined to mean a very narrow interpretation of does it implement ERC-4337 or not? But that's frankly an inferior version. We should have shipped 3074 and there's still a lot of strides that need to be made there. So yeah, it's trying to solve the problem that even with 4337, for example, there are a lot of apps that check origin equals message sender and 4337 will never work for those. There are other websites like OpenSea, even the biggest of the biggest that require and blur, that require off-chain signatures to verify a login. And that's impossible to do if there's no private key that exists. I mean, maybe you can do some sort of 1271 workaround, but that is often then that's an edge case on an edge case. And it itself is often never supported. So the goal here is how do you make account abstraction work on EOAs? Because everybody has an EOA and everybody will always have an EOA. If you can build something that works for them, then you can build something that works for everybody. So it's a bit of a unique right. approach. Others are trying to layer on complexity on complexity and hope that the current simple model will disappear. But that's often not the case in product evolution. It's that medium complex models don't get replaced with even more complex models. They stick around and people put up with them until people invent something simpler. And so we're going for the, how do we make this as simple as possible direction of account abstraction. Makes sense. I think simple is always the best solution until you reach a new kind of iteration and you can obviously ship that. But I think getting the first iteration now, seeing how it interfaces with the world, how people are using it, whether they're actually using it or not, so you don't waste your time building the next version and new features, which I think a lot of people do. It's just kind of jam all the features into the first version. <laughs> Either one, release it and nobody uses it, or just two, never actually release it because it's still trying to perfect it before it's even version one which i've done before and i'm learning now to have to get mvp out no matter what even if it's super cursed code as long as you get that first version out it's fine yeah and the, the great irony is that people when the two feature rich version fails because of complexity they then try mm. to jam in even more features because the reason it failed was because it didn't have enough. The feedback loop gets broken in weird ways there. Yeah, yeah. I think it's quite a hard task to think like as a technical founder, you're just like, I want to release this high-end thing that nobody's ever seen before. And it's just kind of hard without feedback from a user. It's just really left in the dark and drops at your own kind of biased perspective, I think. Yeah, that's what surprises me. I think the best thing you can do for product development is just be support. You can't hire external support. You need to be talking to users and seeing if you can explain the solution to their problem. 
and then see if you can alleviate the problem before it even happens. But you have to know what's going on. You have to know the people who reach out are only a small microcosm of the broader mm. set of people who get confused and leave and never talk to you. But it's valuable info regardless. You just have to get some semblance of product market fit and then try to expand from there instead of making one grand cathedral that is missing a support and crumbles on first contact with the world. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Just got to keep on adding the extension onto like the side and just see how it works, whether people enjoy it. So did you do any kind of pre-releases, early access lists? Or was it just like ship, let them try it? Put out a beta version or two, but this was mostly for feedback on the code style, I think. And can we get a front end up and running compared to actual... Delegate's unique in that it's heavily B2B, or at least the registry is, of that it's not immediately useful on its own. It requires other people to trust it as a source of truth. And this is very much the exception. This is rare. If I launch an NFT, then people can buy the NFT and they have the NFT and they can be immediately successful. They can look at it, they can go sell it, they can transfer it around. They don't need anybody else to do anything. But for delegate, if you delegate your wallet, then that's kind of useless. On launch day, there are no additional features offered you, no utilities, no projects have integrated. So it's hard to get user feedback without that. We kind of had to throw it out there and then see how people responded and start working on the projects. I think the feedback is the number one thing in any startup because otherwise you're just kind of building blind in the dark and just praying they're going to use the feature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just not too fun. Then you build like this feature after hours of work and just... Nobody cares. You know, I got sick. All right, let's try again. And you mentioned you talked to a lot of people. They would want either, you know, on-chain or a RESTful API. And now you have an API, right? You have to keep that up with like maintenance costs, I assume. So I guess how do you even earn money for an open source tool and keep it lively? We've been focused on growth to this point. The immediate answer is that we don't, but the long answer is once we've cemented the network effects here, it enables this entire design space of what you can build on top of it. And that is, I think, very strongly and easily monetizable. So the biggest example is Delegate Market or Liquid Delegate, where users can delegate to themselves from a cold wallet to a hot wallet, for example. But it's also more interesting to think about what does it look like if you could delegate out into the world? You can hold a board ape and you can let somebody else play the dookie dash or the heavy metal game on your behalf. This solves the, solves the paradox of high floor prices combined with the desire to expand the community by separating asset utility from asset ownership. Mm. So on this, for example, you can create what are called delegate tokens and then transfer around or even buy and sell the rights to access the delegate, the ability to access delegation rights. And so this, I think, is an entirely new take on the kind of tried and failed model of renting and lending. Renting failed because the collateral requirements are just too high to justify it. And you've got these messy liquidations and counterparty risk to worry about. Lending platforms, it seems, are always one motivated seller away from a complete liquidation cascade followed by bad debt. None of them are set it and forget it today. It's always set it and come back in a month and see what's still standing. And compared to that, by building on the delegate registry that doesn't introduce this counterparty risk, you can actually have a robust primitive that we can deploy and go rip Van Winkle 
and come back in five years and it's still standing no matter what the economics have done in the meantime. So that's a far more interesting economic primitive to me. That's just one of several, but it's probably the more immediate that we're launching. So I think that crypto, frankly, is so money adjacent that the hard thing is more often to find product market fit than it is to make money. And so that's where we focused our efforts to date. That makes sense. I remember during the bull run, you would see all these NFT lending platforms. And the main thing you would kind of see is just the diversity in assets was just so low maybe one asset of every NFT, and then it would just cost a ridiculous amount to even access. Even then, you might not even have wanted it, right? It would just be like some random NFT or collection for like like five ETH to rent it. And then it comes yeah. to the question, why would you even <laughs> rent this to begin with for you know some random collection? So this doesn't make sense. The reason was that none of these platforms took a backwards compatible approach. They said, you can you can rent this asset if you opt into this new ERC-49 whatever standard. And of course, none of the valuable ones did because it's a no-name standard made by a nobody for a platform with no adoption. (laughs) (laughs) And, (laughs) And so really, you have to mold yourself around what is the current flow. You, it's also very arrogant, made, not to say impossible, but you better have all your ducks in a row to imagine that you're going to reimagine to imagine that you're going to reshape the very basic things people are doing. This idea, I think it's a theme, at least in my work, of you should be backwards compatible with what people are doing today, and that means if people are trading trading board apes, then you should work on board apes, and if they're using EOAs then you should be interoperable with EOAs. It seems, it feels simple when you put it like that, but so many people design a new world without offering a bridge to it or a way for anyone to try it out. And so it dies from liquid defragmentation or a number of other reasons. When you put it like that of, you know, everybody's, you know, in in this current consensus of what's being used and what what's kind of like, I guess, the social standard, to like someone coming into the game and being like, okay, everybody, let's shift over to my standard. Everybody come over here real quick. And so we can, you know, capture my vision without like any, especially with any reputation, any network, you know, any of that stuff. It's just, if you put it like that in an abstract sense, it just sounds ridiculous, first of all. So a, a backwards compatible product is definitely the way. And then through that, I think you could probably like branch into that. You know, without initially allowing ease of access into the product, it just doesn't make sense at all. I think it's true for like any product as well. If there's, I think, for example, a lot of the security tools, it's just getting them like set up and running is quite like user unfriendly to like the user. You have to like, you know, set up all the environment variables, run through like a, this documentation that seems just very hard to manage or like go through. And it's just like a massive time waster, um, especially for like the target audience, which is, you know, startups and they want to spend their time on uh, like building. Um, so, yeah. So, yeah, the backwards compatibility and just ease of access for the user is, is quite a big thing, I've noticed at least, um, in startups. Yeah, mm-hmm. like startups would just have like horrible documentation or, you know, just very convoluted ways of even accessing the product, which I think ultimately kills it until... Because you only got like one shot for a user, right? And then unless it, you know, on Twitter, you see a blow up and everybody's talking about it. Chances are they're probably not going to come back 
And so it was very like first impression heavy and you kind of got to get it right, which is very brutal, but very, very much the reality of startup life. <laughs> that's where I think um, what, that's where I think a, a weakness of mine, which is that I'm like very impatient and judgmental has actually turned into a strength here because I'm able to look, I'm able to look at my own things with the same eyes that I do other people's and say, if I were just trying this out for the first time, this would be way too confusing. And I would click through for 30 seconds and then give up and never return. Yeah. And so can you pass your, maybe only works on a certain personality type, but can you pass your own sniff test is, can be quite valuable. If somebody shot you this in a cold DM, what would you look at? What would you think and, and why? And when the inevitable answer is that I would get confused and not try the right thing, then that needs to be fixed first and foremost above all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if it was to be like a cold DM or even just thinking of it as you're whether you are the user and why would you use this? You obviously have to have a problem that's presented and then the solution and how to access that solution. So I think having that perspective as a founder or a technical founder is very invaluable, especially if you're building a startup from you've experienced the problem firsthand and that's why you're actually building it, which tends to be majority of the time. Then you kind of know what the user wants because you were the user. And um, through that, you can kind of see what's missing and then build from that. Yeah. I wonder your thoughts on ZK then and doing, you know, this kind of account extraction on ZK platforms. If you're looking to do it at all, maybe you've gone into like a trying to expand on a different startup now or yeah, I want to just go into that a little bit. I think ZK is incredibly powerful tech. You've got two subcategories of it. The ZK compression, which is what people usually mean when they talk about ZK rollups and ZK mm -hmm. privacy. Um, which yeah. people is, which is what people think they're talking about when they hear ZK rollup for the first time. And maybe there's a ZK ZK rollup. Forget who coined that terminology, where you both get the compression and the privacy. But mostly today we have the competition with optimistic. So I think there are. I love to see the experimentation. I think that ZK Sync, for example, has native account abstraction, or they've killed the idea of EOAs altogether and everything. Everything has to be a smart contract account. So it's definitely definitely one approach, and I'm ex I'm excited to see a lot of people tinkering with it. But I don't know if it's quite general purpose enough for broad adoption yet. While people are working out these kinks, but yeah, I, th I think that I think that zk privacy is going to be absolutely critical. The battle there are still some technical works to be worked out, but the battle is much more, I think, on the social layer of say like would ethereum be willing to compromise or would ethereum be willing to not compromise and fight some very difficult battles to get base layer privacy enabled by default i do think that there are crypto is currency is the best incentive mechanism for cryptography advancement the world's ever seen and so we're getting a decade's worth of cryptography every year now it seems because the incentive structures are are lined up that way. So it does seem like we'll just see breakthrough after breakthrough. I mean, people didn't think that ZK compression was going to be possible until 2026. And now here we are, three different teams from three different orgs have all launched or are launching. 
maybe closer to five to seven this year. So yeah, pipelines yeah, do seem to, to to accelerate on that front. Yeah, yeah. ZK is a I, I personally agree that it's a I think the future of cryptocurrency just makes sense. It just makes sense. It's it's just in the name, right? <laughs> uh like privacy, you know, all, all that stuff. And I, I think this account abstraction would be very interesting in it because then you have, you know, private transactions and you can just designate this wallet to send to your cold wallet anonymously, I guess, and just be like very hard to track. Kind of like a tornado cache. I guess like every protocol basically becomes tornado cache in that sense, which is quite interesting. And I, I wonder, like, I'm really... I'm really interested to see how the whole uh, environment plays out. I, and I wonder if people would even start using Ethereum again. Maybe it will just become like this laundering platform, laundering network, especially the bridge, the bridges. Those are like where all the major hacks come from. And, you know, if, if people are able to send anonymous transactions and not really track where it's going, then it just opens up the, the game to like black hats, giving them more advantages. But, you know... I guess with every innovation, it also comes like problems as well to varying degrees. But overall, well, I'm pretty excited about the. Yeah, it's more of just a, a reversion to the status quo, where the the idea that every transaction is public by default is kind of absurd. We don't know no other nothing else in the financial system, not cash, not bank accounts, not credit cards not wire transfers has this property. And it's obvious why it's impossible to to get anything done that way. Like plenty of legitimate legitimate use cases, like I want to pay for gas and I want to pay for gas or groceries in a foreign country and not get mugged on the way out are pretty critical. Institutional use cases, like being able to enter, exit a, a TWAP without massive front running that completely destroys anything they have that's critical so yeah it'll be very curious to see how it all plays out mm -hmm. and are you working on any more startups as well at the moment or are you just completely focused on delegate no focused on delegate okay got you and you know you mentioned you were an ml researcher prior to web3 so i wonder what are your kind of thoughts on on the next kind of frontier of ai probably like a bit you know, curve in, in the topics, but it's good to kind of talk about. I've been, you know, quite interested in this because, you know, AI has been making so many advances quite recently. And, you know, there's always the idea of, you know, programmers are going to get replaced quite soon. <laughs> I mean, relative or what you think is soon, but I mean, it can be a reality. And, you know, personally, I trying to be hedge, I'm trying to hedge, I guess, my skills to the point where I'm not going to get you know, completely rugged one from AI. How much time do you think you have before you're out on the streets? Obsolete. Yeah, yeah. Like, I think a lot of people that I've talked to think it would happen by, like, 2030, where, you know, programmers are just, like, obsolete. All the jobs are going to be, like, data scientists, PhDs, and then you just have, like, designers, basically. <laughs> yeah, I wonder what your, your kind of take on that is, given your background in it. Yeah, it seems there are a couple dimensions that we're advancing on concurrently. The most obvious one is just size. We're figuring out how to make better and better chips, and we're making more of them, and we're hooking them up on faster, on faster clusters. And we have, well, now scraped most of the data that there is to be scraped on the internet before we enter doom loop of chatbots training on themselves. 
So you've got you've got the size dimension that's probably most impressive at most public and still seeing rapid breakthroughs on that front. GPT four yeah. enables new entirely new startups and applications that you frankly couldn't do on GPT three point five. And so these are the kinds of phase changes that technology enables, but we're seeing them in six months now instead of six years. So that's so it's much more visceral and easy to read. And then the the other dimension, the other dimension is efficiency. So can you we can now I mean, throwing out very hand wavy numbers here because it depends on a lot <laughs> of other factors, but you can train you can train a model of similar quality in 2023 that to the same performance and accuracy metrics that you would have needed 10x the parameters to do two, three years ago. Um, And that efficiency is improving. It's still dwarfed by model size scaling up, but it's very real. And so you concurrently have these monolithic put a man on the moon hundred million dollar projects that are getting funded at OpenAI and Anthropic and many of the others. But you concurrently have the older models that are getting accessible to the point where you can run mid-journey on a consumer Mac. Um yeah. and we're gonna see like 10x mid-journey, a model that's far higher quality, be able to be run on a consumer Mac next year through even better efficiency and algorithmic improvements so so we, we we've mm-hmm. got both there's the how do you train the quadrillion parameter model but there's also how big how good of a model can you squeeze onto consumer hardware and mm-hmm. both, of, both of these are advancing pretty fast the limitation we seem to be having is just on interactive environments so we've run out of data on a lot of they have scraped the entire internet and they Google scraped all the Google scraped all the physical books a decade or two ago, and it turned out that that wasn't even that large. It was really high quality data, but there were only so many books lying around. And then they learned, and then they scraped all of Reddit, and Reddit has consumed far too many lives. So you get you get more text. I think you get more text from Reddit than you get from the books, but lower quality. That is the trade off. But then. Yeah, they 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 scrape the books, they scrape the ship posts, they scrape the rest of the internet. And pre twenty twenty one, internet is kind of like undersea non radiated steel that was protected yeah. from the nuclear fallout of World War Two because mm-hmm. they have to go in, in material science and engineering, they have to use that for certain measurement devices, and so shipwrecks are this source of pristine steel that basically under underwater is the only place in the world you can go to protect yourself as you're trying to work with these things. And in a similar way, pre-2021 training data is the only data you can trust to not have been contaminated by by AI in a way. Um, so the, the next breakthrough on that front is going to be how can we design interactive environments where machines can self-learn or reinforcement learning. Um, you see this in chess, like the best human players are rated 2,800 and the best computers are rated 36, 3,700, which um, I mean, in is, is logarithmic. So essentially you can, you can, a computer can be a rook down to Magnus Carlsen and still pull off the victory, which is insane to think about. Um, 
but you need you need to design that's that's possible if we trained computers solely on human trading data then yeah. it would have been tough to get higher than 2800 i mean maybe maybe better compute and better memorization gets you to 29 or 29 or 30 but you can't go much beyond that because you're learning off fundamentally flawed data so what's the equivalent of that for like language what's the equivalent of that for economics maybe blockchains on the latter point. But I think that designing proper reinforcement learning environments is going to be the next breakthrough that enables scaling up. Yeah, that, that makes total sense where, you know, if it's if, the, if it's training on like a human, right, it only gets to a certain point where it's reached, I guess, the pinnacle of it. And then from there, there's not really any advancements. But if, if it starts to train on itself, then it, I guess... It can go way beyond like a human's capability. Um, yeah, it's like it's like playing basketball with a kindergartner. Yeah, you, you <laughs> can you you can you can win, but there's only so much of your skill set you can develop because, frankly, you don't need that much skill to beat the kindergartner. Um, yeah, you, yeah, you have exactly. to you have to be challenged by someone at or near your level to to continue improving. Yeah, so then it just you know trains off itself after getting to that pinnacle uh and then from the you can start like advancing um so i I wonder are you doing anything to kind of hedge yourself against ai or um what do you really see for the future of i I guess you know company i companies i uh i've been kind of told by people you know their opinions where they think there's going to be two type of companies right there's going to be the ones that you know use ai whatever it is to some degree or another. Um, and there's going to be, you know, the bankrupt companies, the companies that don't use AI and they just get kind of like priced out from, you know, competition. So I guess what's kind of your perspective on that? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm probably not not as dystope nor utopic as most of the online commentary out. So I don't think it's, I don't think it's going to wreck us all, but I don't think it brings us immediate salvation either. Um, there are definitely real improvements like Google. Um, Google has figured out a good way for AI to design better AI chips, which then mm, um, crazy. better, more, more efficient layouts. They look nothing like the neatly structured grids that you see on, on modern circuit boards. They're all over the place. But when you actual, when you run the actual computations, Somehow it seems to just work out that way. Um, and so, I, yeah, I mean, what are, what are the scarce resources in a world where intelligence is commoditized? I'd say is capital and capital and influence. I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's not a huge problem, actually, because commoditize intelligence and the world becomes free. If you know how to... Um, yeah, you if if you can if you have an omnipotent little program at your fingertips and you can ask it to tell you how to farm apples for a thousandth of the cost and now the cost of an apple is a penny instead of a dollar. And so like th- this whole uh, and so the idea of in a yeah in a, in a post scarcity world you don't need to worry about how will I charge how will I extract rent? Because nothing is scarce, um, and so mm. you're you're not making as much money, but nothing costs as much anymore. Um, yeah, I don't like. I don't think that 
happens as smoothly as that extrapolation, we can see very clearly that we should be post-scarcity on houses, and we're not because there are a lot of bureaucratic barriers to enacting new ones. And you yeah. got a lot of people who have um, put their life savings into their health, into their house, and so they would be sad to see the value of that go down, so they vote for people who will fight against that. Um, and that probably happens in a much stronger manner if you get disruption of of broader industries as well so yeah it's 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 tough to say but i think it's more beneficial than harmful to the world i mean we it used to be that humans um humans used to be the best at a lot of things and now we're not like we used to be um for 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 example humans used to be the best at farming um if you're a horse, you have no opposable thumbs and you can't really plant seeds or whatever. Um, and now humans are no longer best at farming. You can uh, Machines and robots are far better at that. But that didn't destroy the economy or I mean, it didn't make a generation of farmers destitute. So um, there's that on a much broader scale. But the world is kind of better off now. Um, if you fast forward a century. And so I do wonder, is is intelligence this uniquely human thing or is it just another thing to commoditize and then focus on what it is that actually makes us human? Right. So yeah, that makes sense. A, lot of, a lot of, yeah, a lot of words to say. I'm not doing much <laughs> except <laughs> trying to win in the fields that I see as right for competition. Yeah, that makes sense. Just focus on what you like and what you think is an opportunity until the great takeover. Yeah. I mean, it's still hard to get a decent front-end site done for yourself. I'm all about this robots will take the programming jobs, but can you hurry up and get on with it already? <laughs> I've got stuff to do, and it still takes the robots don't know React yet. So I think it's a little bit of I will... Maybe I need to play around more with GPT-4 and it's already getting good at data science, but I'd welcome this. Even now, the scarce resource is not how fast can I type. It's can I think right? Can I have the right ideas? And that higher level strategy. So I think that intermediation of low skill programming, if that's a thing, is just beneficial overall. My job is primarily have good ideas and assemble the right people to make it happen. Everything else is noise. Yeah, if you have the idea, then everything else is just a tool to get that idea into fruition. In this case, you know, there's artificial intelligence that you could do basically any programming. You still need to direct it in some way. It won't create everything that's, you know, that has been invented instantly. It needs some direction of, you have this idea okay, how do I convey this in a way that I can execute it? Because that's exactly what you do with humans, right? You have an idea and you try to execute it the best way you can by conveying it to other people and you know, formulating a strategy, a to-do list of what needs to be done, how it interconnects, how to ship it, etc. So that's, I think, what would be replaced in due time. But the underlying idea and direction doesn't seem like it will ever go away. Yeah. I mean, blo blockchains are maybe an interesting view into this they've completely abstracted away the need to maintain a consistent back-end computing environment at least on simple mm -hmm. stuff you can deploy a smart contract and it'll just run forever or it'll be mm -hmm. available to be triggered forever on chain and you don't have to say manage your own redundant kubernetes cluster on a cross-cloud aws setup someone's doing it somewhere but that's so guaranteed that 
it's basically done for you by magic. And that attracted me to crypto. I can focus on the fun bits and the infra side is mostly done for me. Now, obviously, as you build more and more complex apps, there's more infra you need. The simple idea of deploy a smart contract and it runs autonomously for you forever, I think it gives insight. We didn't stop programming just because we had consistent execution environment. It lets you do more and faster iterations within that because half your work is done for you and so you can do a better job at the other half. Yeah, I agree with that. When I was doing DAP development as well, I've never like gone into databases or managing all this information. It, it was just always there, always accessible at any given time. So I was like, this is perfect. And you can make your own database mirror. Maybe it gives you better better latency or gets around some rate limits, but those are just implementation quirks, not fundamental features. And if given the choice, all else equal, I'd rather query the chain than query my own database. Same. Uh, and I guess for you know developers that are worried about you know AI, what what would you do to hedge yourself? The later we get in, do you recommend people to learn about how to train their own models, supervise unsupervised learning, deep reinforcement learning? Do you recommend like learning that at all or just focusing on what you're doing now, try and get that done, only worry about it when it comes? I'd say soak up as much as you can. The reason that I studied math originally was doing more of a standard CS path and switched to math was that it felt like a lot of the CS knowledge was specific and highly likely to become out of date. At the time, we were developing apps in, like Android apps in Java, which is not dead, but also not something I've touched nor wanted to touch in the last decade. So I was kind of right. Whereas the math underpinning, how much of that have I used directly? I don't know, but it gives me the toolkit to be able to rapidly understand new developments and catch up on them. Like I might not know if you train BERT then you might not know exactly how GPT-4 works, but you have a foundation for what's a model tokenizer, what are bottlenecks, how do cluster sizes work, what are common failure modes, what do lost landscapes look like, and so on. I think just soak up all you can as generalizable skills as you can. The longer mm -hmm. something's been around and been useful, the more likely it is to continue sticking around and be useful. The newer something is, the more likely it is to be quickly replaced as well. So that's the great fall in the seam to leaves a lot of Lindy or something. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Just try to learn the foundations as best you can. And then working hard is rarely in vain. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh, I think the generalized skill set is something I am quite into as well. If you're doing one thing, try and link it to as many things as possible. For example, doing automated exploit generation now, it links into reverse engineering, cybersecurity, algorithms as well. And then it can also go into forward engineering or building stuff from scratch, a whole range of things. It came from Huff originally, which I did manually and then branched into that. And then through this, I could branch into AI, for example, all these different areas. So I agree by trying to hit as many fields as possible within the thing you're doing, given it's relevant. But I think if you have some kind of path to evolve in learning, then I think that's a terrific way of never being stagnant and always learning, basically. I think if you stop learning, then that's a problem. Yeah, definitely. There's always going to be new stuff, but the skills of learning how to learn never go out of date. Yeah, 
I wonder what was your process of starting the delegate team and wearing all these hats, developing, building a network as a BD, shipping it, getting the front end, back end, all this stuff, designing architecture. How did you really wear all these hats and manage it to the point where you were prioritizing as best as you possibly can and then scaling as well? Like if you were hiring people, what constitutes a good hire and et cetera? Very reluctantly, I'd say. My overarching goal and vision and intention is very simply to build things that people use that has a host of downstream benefits, raising, hiring, employing, monetization, and so on. But Mm. it's also deeply satisfying if I think that's the purpose of work is to build things that improve other people's lives and setups. I'm very focused on are people using this or not? If so, what do they love? If not, what do they want? What could be better? Everything around that does flow a bit naturally in terms of I built an interesting tech tool. It flopped because there was no BD. Learned from that. Now I'm building this new tech tool. How can we absolutely crush on the BD side? Who are the right people to bring on board? And then similarly, like we have 120 hours worth of tech work we need every week. I can't do it all myself. There's We move past the ego stage very quickly to the pragmatist stage. So what's the right approach there? I think personally, I enjoy the actual fundamentals of strategy and tech more than I do in management overhead. So targeting, I think, higher skilled people than median, but also less overhead than median. I've made boatload of mistakes and learnings and there's always new problems to be solved but i think i I really enjoy the end result and so whatever is necessary to get there i'll do it yeah yeah for sure what are the main points what makes someone a good bd versus a mediocre bd and how can you really get to that next level and you know make these great connections and genuine connections as well not just using each other but actually being friends first of all and then forming a great relationship where you can expand on Yeah, that's a tough one. It's very easy to see skill in the things that you've tried to be good at. If you're a college basketball player, you can recognize why the NBA stars are so great. Maybe a simpler example is I played a lot in middle and high school. And so I have strong appreciation when I can see that people are windmill dunking because I've tried or at least thought about what it would be like to try and didn't get there. Compared to if I watch ice hockey, I've never really tried to be excellent there. And so I can believe that they're good, but I don't really see or feel it compared to what the median ice hockey player is. In a similar way, I've done a lot of work on the tech side, front end, back end, solidity coding. And so I think I can (laughs) pretty instantly see, show me your work and I can know what quality dev you are. And so something like BD, I'm good at it myself, but... It's a lot more fuzzy. There's not quite a portfolio of work. People are often better at presenting themselves than they are at actually executing. So I think that pure experimentation, let's try somebody out and see how they do and see if that's what we need or not, is a decent way of trying to gain more of that intuition. It's a tough problem. I consider myself more lucky than good on that front, although hopefully I can turn some of the luck into figuring out how to repeat it. 
yeah it's all like a numbers game of what's working and what's not working and focus on the things that work and then get more quantity of that than not try and just filter out what's good but you can only really do that from experience yeah so you just got to be willing to, i think try stuff succeed or fail and then do it again yeah which is the mantra for just engineering in general i think for anything really to achieve anything you just got to fail see why it failed identify it and then apply the solution to the next iteration and then eventually hopefully it will come into fruition at the end yeah thank you so much for jumping on and spending the time with me today uh, i've probably enjoyed it and have learned a lot as well i'm pretty keen to see the future of delegate the whole space and even just ai in general i think this is going to be very interesting to see how it all plays out and even look back at this in the future so once again thank you for coming on couldn't agree more thanks so much for inviting me and having me on really enjoy the convo Great. And for anyone that wants to use FUBAR's tool, just go to delegate.xyz and then you'll be presented with the page and you can go interact with that. Secure your on-chain identity. And if you want to jump on the podcast or suggest anyone to jump on the podcast, just DM me at ScrapingBits on Twitter and I'll look into it. Otherwise, thank you so much for coming on and we'll see you in the next episode.